Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Toby, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the whopping 35 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Andrew. Hello. And our lovely guest, Jillian. Hello. Surprise! If you didn't listen to last episode, Jillian is with us. Jillian, we're so (laughs) excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I haven't read a book since the last time I was on. Oh, wow. You stayed strong, huh? That's not true. She hates reading. She only writes music 24-7. That's very true. (laughs) In case you're unaware, in case you're a recent Pedro, Jillian is the composer of our lovely theme song. And my wife. Oh, yes, yes. And and Andrew's wife. Whatever. How have you guys been lately? How's things in old Woodstock, New York? Well, things in Woodstock are beautiful. We're having a semi-snowy winter. um, Mm. So we've had some nice snowy moments in the woods and then it's all melted away and come back and the beautiful cycle of of uh, winter in upstate new york mm. yeah fleet foxes keep showing up at our house and playing white winter <laughs> hymnal non-stop for hours at a time they only play the first like 15 seconds and then the snow melts and they're like oh we gotta we gotta leave now they, then they pack up and then it snows again yeah well actually i haven't been in woodstock new york for quite a while and i'm not Say right what? now because i have been on a whirlwind of day job work including just recently which is friday uh two days ago as the time crow flies uh <laughs> gotten back from istanbul turkey Ooh. so uh, i was there for work it was very fun but i am still very confused as to what time it is so pages if i start dissociating that's why <laughs> Yeah, we do usually cut out the parts of the podcast where Andrew just randomly announces the time, but we'll just make sure we do that for this one, too. Yeah, that's good. That's mm-hmm. good. And as always, remember, you know, time is a construct. Mm-hmm. Very important. It's a remember. flat circle as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, it's all you do time. have to respect the time crow, though. <laughs> yeah, the time crow is our is our is our new leader. The uh-huh. time yeah. crow knows all. Caca. The next episode is going to be like, welcome to the two readlers. It'll, it'll be the time crow. <laughs> um, Toby. 35. That's a low number. I feel like you need to get some shame going. Did you have any this last fortnight? I did, but I'm actually already reading it. But I'm so glad you asked because every once in a while, I feel like I get so excited about a book. I need to shout it out on the podcast. And this is such a case. Ooh, Ooh. Toby's got a book crush like a dork. Oh, it's true. (laughs) I'm blushing. So loyal pages may remember many episodes ago, I read uh, Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Do you remember that one, Andrew? Yes, I do. The, the, the book that the movie The Handmaiden is based on. Yes, exactly. I really, really liked Fingersmith uh, a lot. And I have been looking out for another Sarah Waters ever since. I know she has several very successful books. And I was over in my old favorite bookstore in Humboldt, uh, Eureka Books. Check it out if you're ever in the area. And I picked up The Paying Guests by Sarah Waters. And let me tell you. I really liked Fingersmith, but this book, I haven't finished it yet. I'm like maybe a third of the way through, but it is amazing. I love it. Wow. Yeah. It is basically like the main character is this young woman. You know, we would consider her young, but she's living in 1920s London. So she's like 28. And so she's like, I'm an ancient spinster. And she uh, (laughs) lives with her mother in this kind of like grand house and they've fallen on hard times and they are forced to 
take in paying guests or lodgers. Um, and so they invite this married couple to rent the upper rooms of the house. And, uh, you know, intrigue abounds. The married couple is like, oh, is their relationship okay? What's happening here? There's weird dynamics. She really conjures that uncomfortable feeling. I don't know how you guys feel about having house guests in the house. Like, I like it, but also you're just very aware that other people are in your house. And she mm-hmm. conjures that feeling so strongly as like, you can can hear them walking around and kind of talking through the walls and yeah it's great i do enjoy a house guest but after only you know for a few days and then you gotta go yeah my sister betsy has a saying which she says after three days house guests begin to smell Ooh. That's her rule, basically. <laughs> Sounds like something that Ben Franklin would have written. Mm, that's true. Is this um is Sarah Waters someone who you had heard of before the podcast, or is this like an entirely podcast specific find for you? Well, actually, um, I'd heard her name faintly, and then Fingersmith was actually Louise's book. She bought it um at like a library book sale a long time ago in LA, and then it was just kind of hanging around the house. It was a real actual to-read list, you know, hanging around the house book. And for a long time, I didn't know how good it was, and I just was kind of tickled by the name. And so Louise and I would just say Fingersmith to each other. As you do. All the time. (laughs) Yeah, but now since then, I've discovered that she's very well respected. And I will say it's not a spoiler to say if you know her stuff. All of them, I think, have like sapphic romance as their cornerstone. And this one is no different. So that's another interesting twist. She writes these kind of sapphic romances that happen in not the olden days, but certainly the 20s days. The older days than now. Thank you. Thank God Jillian's here. <laughs> so actually, since Jillian is here, uh, you've already done the two read list gauntlet of questions, which I think we've used about four times in our history. So we won't make you do that again. Mm-hmm. However, I am curious if there's any books that you've read recently that you uh, particularly enjoyed, because I, despite your lie at the beginning of yep. the podcast, I happen to know that you've been reading quite voraciously in the oh. last few years. Well, specifically in the last <laughs> month or so. But yeah. Wow. Wow. Exposed. Yes, I have been reading. Well, you see, sometimes you encounter a series that just sucks you right in and you can't get out. And so that's it's been that for me with Rebecca Yaros's fourth wing and oh. um iron flame which i keep trying to call iron claw but apparently that's a movie with zach efron <laughs> um so yes the dragons abound and i am i'm in i want more i'm ready these are hot books these are like very very popular books what is so you're a double thumbs up on them I'm a double thumbs up. It's, you know, there's a there's a certain genre of book or type of book where you start to read it and you say, you know what, this thinking cap, this critique cap mm. that I have on my head, I'm tossing it out the window. I don't even care. I, mm-hmm. I don't care to think critically about this. I just want to read it and enjoy. Yeah, I've heard it called romanticy. Does that sound correct to you? Oh, I like that. That's yes, that is what it is. I've heard it called Horny Dragons. <laughs> it's yeah, Horny Dragons. Uh, it's a book for adults. Any other uh, any other um, books that you've been reading recently? Uh, yes, I've been watching the series since it came out, but I finally started reading on audiobook the Bridgerton series. So I'm through oh. the first book and, and a little of the ways into the second one. And um, hot take, I like huh? the show better. Oh. Whoa. It might be the other way around if I had read the books first, but yeah, I people who read the books already know this, but the world of the books is much smaller than the world of the show. And I, I enjoy the additional characters that have um, have been brought into the show. Wow. 
Dang. Dang. Uh, Andrew, before you try and duck away from it, have you acquired any shame or would you like to take this opportunity to be like, no, I don't have any shame? No. Well, I have a different kind of shame, which is that I have a tradition. I have not bought any books, but I have a tradition of buying books in the language of the country that I visit. Specifically, I buy Mm. a copy of The Little Prince in that language. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And I just realized I forgot to buy one in Turkish. Oh. So I guess I have to go back to Istanbul. More like Turkish disappointment. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah, more like Turkish (laughs) sadness. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think I might go back there either for work or, you know, just again in the future. So I'll have to remember that time. You just, I mean, I'm sure you can find a copy of The Little Prince in the airport. So you can just, I don't know, just fly to the airport and scour. Just try to fly, fly through Istanbul on the mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could do that. A tactical layover. Yeah. Like $850 copy of The Little Prince. I think that Turkish disappointment should be the name <laughs> of the candy as well. Yes. Oh. Um, and I think everyone agrees. Not Edmund. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Edmund really loves it. But I think, yeah, most people do agree on this. It is it is a real disappointment. And if you don't know what we're talking about, we are, of course, talking about the candy Turkish delight that in the Chronicles of Narnia is hyped up to an absurd degree to where I think Edmund betrays his whole family just to get some. And uh, yeah, if you've had it in real life, eh, that's not so amazing. But speaking of languages and the languages of the world, Toby, did you read a book this week? I did. I read Babel colon, or the necessity of violence, colon, an arcane history of the Oxford Translators Revolution by R.F. Kuang. Ooh. Double colon. So I read this book, hooray, hooray. I really struggled with this log line. It contains not one, but two M dashes, which is the writing person's way of dodging a period. Let's see if you can guess where they are. <laughs> R.F. Kuang's babble tells the story of Robin Swift, an orphan from Canton, who finds himself adopted by the mysterious Professor Lovell and swept from his home off to London. There, he quickly discovers that the Professor and England at large have not only plans for him to attend the prestigious Babel College at Oxford, but also a rapacious desire to dominate his home country via a mixture of the forced export of opium and the British development of silver-based translation magic, the very magic they want Robin himself to perform. Ooh. Magical, mystical, read it on the elliptical. Tell me more. (laughs) Oh, wow. I really liked that. I will tell you more. (laughs) The reason I struggled with a logline is because this is like a a life story. We start when Robin is a literal child. Um, He is living in Canton. He is Cantonese. And the story starts when his entire family and indeed most of his neighborhood dies of cholera. So Robin is taken by Professor Lovell. Lovell shows up and basically saves his life using a mysterious bar of silver that he places on Robin's chest and he mutters some words and Robin is kind of saved from the brink of death by some mysterious force. Lovell takes him home to England. He is very cold towards him and it is not a spoiler to say because it becomes very obvious very quickly that Professor Lovell is probably Robin's dad and he may or may not have been sort of farming children in Canton uh, for a reason that Robin discovers eventually uh, when he gets to Babel College in Oxford and this is where Kwong's alternate world kind of comes into focus. In this world everything is as it is in the 1830s except that Britain's dominance is fueled by silver translation magic. Um, I will explain more about that in my elves, but all you need to know is basically Professor Lovell wants him to be a Babel scholar. 
and so he ushers him through his education. And at first, Robin is more than happy to oblige because he finds Oxford to be basically a paradise. Um, there are many, many pages dedicated to how great Oxford is. And the translation magic that they do there is fascinating. He loves speaking languages. He loves learning languages. He's basically delighted with this new life that he's being offered. Not only this, but at Oxford, Robin finally finds his friends. They are the other students in his year. There's Rami, a boy pulled from India. There's Victoire, black woman who's pulled from Haiti. And Letty, who is the only white member of the foursome. Uh, and she is a British admiral's daughter. And they form the kind of school friendship core of this story. And the, most of the story happens with them in it. And how is their rivalry with the Duolingo College at Cambridge? Oh, it is fierce. They actually do they actually do throw shade at Cambridge. It's funny. <laughs> As the plot progresses, however, Robin discovers just how far England, Professor Lovell, and Babel itself are prepared to go to dominate the world in the name of British greatness. Uh, he finds himself repulsed as he discovers that he is now become part of the machinery of empire, the machinery of colonization that has helped and is helping destroy his home country. By then, it's almost too late to disentangle himself, even after after he becomes a somewhat unwilling, somewhat willing aide to the Hermes Society, which is this basically secret society which is dedicated to anti-colonialism and sabotage of Britain's interests abroad. So in the end, he's basically forced to choose. Is he going to stay with Babel and take the kind of easy, dirty way through life? Or is he going to take the hard road of resisting this seemingly unstoppable colonial force of Britain itself? That is the plot. Mm. It's a big plot. It takes place over his whole life. It's crazy. Okay, so I'm going to jump into orcs and elves. And we're going to do elves first. Ooh, Rivendell. <laughs> so the biggest elf, um, and it is a huge towering elf, uh, is the magic system. It is... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Toby, you just love the magic system. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's true. But this one especially deserves a lot of notice. And I think in general, it's one of the things that people are really impressed with in this book. So this one is based on translation, or rather it's based in what's lost in translation. So it works via these silver bars. You have like pure silver silver in a bar, like an ingot, basically, right? And on one side, you write a word in one language. On the other side, you write a word in the other language. That's its quote-unquote translation. And the relative power of the silver bar and the magic is based on how much is lost in translation between the two words. So, wow. for example... You write Bill Murray on one side. Uh-huh. And then you write who on the other side. Come on. <laughs> and then you write... <laughs> Scarlett Johansson <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> For instance, this is an example, and we'll see if this makes sense to you guys. If you write the English word power on one side, you have a couple different meanings for the word power. You have the obvious meaning, like maybe political power, but there's also electrical power. Uh, there's also the, the verb power to provide energy to, stuff like that, right? So we have multiple meanings for the English word power. On the other side, if you were to put poder in Spanish, you have a lot of the same meanings, but you also have the verb to be able to, which the English doesn't quite have. So that is one of the ways they would power this magic, which is, okay, there's this meaning that is lost in translation between the two terms. And then under this magic system, you would now have a silver bar that might do a number of things. They kind of etch these words on silver bars and they see what they do. But the difference between the terms kind of indicates what it might do. So it might increase your ability to, I don't know, mess with electricity, or it might increase your abilities in general because of the verb to be able to. Does that all make sense? 
Yeah. Yeah. So is the more that is lost in translation, the greater the power of the bar? What an astute question, Jillian. Yes. And <laughs> um, that is exactly why Robin himself has been kind of created, because these British scholars are discovering that there are too many words that are being borrowed from the near Romance languages. There's too much interchange between French and Spanish and English, too many borrowed words and cognates. And so the most powerful languages they are finding for their work are the ones that are furthest from English. So Chinese, Japanese, all these other different languages that are further away from English. So in this way, R.F. Kuang not only has created this amazingly interesting magic system, she also ties it perfectly into the theme of her book, which is how uh, language can be an aid to colonialism and how colonialism can corrupt even the most basic things like language or like meaning itself. So it's pretty clever. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's um, it is a really, really cool idea for a magic system. It is perfectly tied into her overall idea for the book. It is really just a chef's kiss of a concept. And unfortunately, that would be the end of my elves. Oh, wow. Oof. Yeah. So on to orcs. I thought I was going to blast through this book. I kept wanting it to be chosen over and over again. I had to sit down and I was reading it on audiobook. Like last night before I went to bed, I had to get through the last of it, like force myself to. Do you guys ever have that experience where you're reading a book on audiobook and you're just like, wow, this one is taking me a long time because you find yourself kind of like not really wanting to engage with it. You're like, oh, I'll listen to a podcast or I'll listen to music instead. Do you know that experience? Mm-hmm. I've only ever uh, loved all art, but yeah, fine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, and I find it's especially with audiobooks, it's really difficult to stay locked in and actually processing the words that are being said mm-hmm. if it's not it's not grabbing you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I discovered I was like kind of struggling through it and maybe I was a third through it and I realized I only had like, you know, four or five days left to finish it. And I was like, oh man, like I thought I was going to be blasting through this. So that's because of a couple things. The characters are pretty rough. They are not very interesting. Robin himself is pretty passive until the very end of the book when he flips entirely. He doesn't really have a sense of personality besides what he needs to kind of suffer uh, at the plot of the book. Um, There's no sense of humor, which was really shocking to me because I read and loved Yellowface, which I think is quite funny. There's also the really tough experience, and I'm sure you guys have read this, where Robin meets these his friends at university and the book keeps telling you (laughs) over and over, these people are so charming. They're so funny. They're so exciting. And you keep like Hmm. reading the things that they're saying on the page. And you're like, are we we looking at the same people? (laughs) These people are quite boring. That's that's rough. Mm -hmm. On top of all that, the book is about as subtle as a bar of silver to the face. (laughs) Kuang really seems to have no faith in her readers. You are not left to figure anything out on your own. The very, very black and white events of the book, which is, you know, I believe in the message. I believe in the anti-colonialist message. I believe in everything she's saying. But the events of the book themselves are not subtle. But that might be okay if there weren't also these footnotes that are basically like they're not even written in the same tone as the rest of the book. They're kind of written in this super expository. She's basically just delivering 
extra opinion to you very, very forcefully. It's like in case you missed <laughs> the message of this very, very direct and straightforward book, you also get told it again in these footnotes. And yeah, it's it's pretty rough. It's it's pretty much a drag to experience. And then the final thing for me that was a real letdown was it didn't really feel like things were that different in this quote unquote alternate history. Because with this silver technology, I kept looking around to be like, okay, what's different? Like what's really different? And it turns out that nothing is different. This is just 1830s mm. England. It has all the same technology, you know, steam, electricity, all that kind of stuff. It's just that silver has kind of stepped in to accentuate everything. But not to a degree where things feel fantastical or different at all. It's just Silver is there for her characters to interact with. And I kept waiting for the promise of this amazing magic system to kind of blossom and show me what really, you know, was possible and what was going to feel fantastical and interesting. And it just it never came. So I don't know. I, I alternately was very excited at parts of this book and ultimately mostly disappointed with it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, indeed. Bummer. Yeah. In the end, I ended up being really happy that I'd read Yellowface first, because Yellowface, to me, is a lot of things that Babel is not. It is funny. It is fast-paced. It is more subtle, and I would say eminently more readable. Uh, I do hear that The Poppy War is much, much better than Babel in terms of like being a fantasy book, so I'm curious to check that out. And I really do think Kwong is a good writer. I just think that this book might have ended up being a miss for me. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of sweated about delivering this, this verdict. I know it is not the greatest look for a cisgender white guy who called Infinite Jest his book of the year last year to not like this book, but um, <laughs> that is how I felt about it, and I'm coming down on uh, a three stars for this book. Oh. oh, I was expecting lower. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how I feel about it eventually. I mean, there's a lot to respect in mm -hmm. here. I think it's one of those books where it just, at parts of it, were like a five star, and then it just kept hacking away at itself. So it had great parts of it. But yeah, it was a very, mm -hmm. it was a rough read. Almost rougher than like, if you know a book is terrible and you're really not enjoying it on the whole, that's a different experience. But it's like, if you really want it to get better and it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing that it can, because there are those five star elements, mm -hmm. and there, this is an author that you're already a fan of. Yeah, exactly. So that's tough. I don't know. I think I think speaking of bolstering my to read list, I think I'm going to put the Poppy War on the to read list because I'm very curious. I, I saw a lot of commentary online that the Poppy War was very different and much more fantasy based. And yeah, I'm curious. Well, I'm sorry you didn't <laughs> like it as much as you thought you were going to. But maybe some facts about RF Kwong would lift your spirits. Yes, please. Woo. All right. I have. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> So, R.F. Kuang, or Rebecca F. Kuang, was born in Guangzhou, uh, China on May 29th, 1996, and immigrated to America when she was four with her family. She grew up in Dallas, Texas, and then graduated high school in 2013, before attending Georgetown University, where she excelled in debate. She apparently chose Georgetown for its debating prowess. Sally Rooney, anyone? I was just thinking of old Sally Roons. Yeah, she was a <laughs> big fan of the old debating, and apparently, if you want to be a young prodigy writer. You got a debate. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah. When she was 19, she began writing her first novel, The Poppy War, during a gap year spent in China. It was published just before her 21st birthday. And yes, that means while she was still in college um, and was very well received. Wowee. Yep. She graduated in 2018 and published a sequel, The Dragon Republic, in 2019, and a third book in the trilogy, The Burning God, in 2020. The first two novels were listed in Time Magazine's 
100 best fantasy novels of all time, though it should be noted that the third had not come out at that point, so could not have also been listed, but maybe it would have made it. Dang. To get a sense of that series, in an interview with the New York Times, she described the series as, what if Mao was a teenage girl? That is a heck of a pitch line. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll see if that gets chosen down the line, what exactly that means. Hmm. While all this was happening, and this is where my brain just sort of breaks, because I have trouble, yeah. you know, getting the dishes done in a day. Mm-hmm. She attended Magdalen College, Cambridge, on a Marshall Scholarship and earned a Master's of Philosophy in Chinese Studies. This was done in one academic year. In one year? Oh, my God. Yep. The very next academic year, she studied at University College, Oxford, and received an MSc in Contemporary Chinese Studies. Man, leave some studies for the rest of us. I know, right? <laughs> and then she returned to the USA to pursue a PhD at, you know, just Yale, <laughs> which she did in 2020. Um, and she is still pursuing that, as far as I can tell from my research. What's causing it? What's taking her so long? Come on. Yeah, seriously. It's just a PhD. In 2022, her fourth novel, Babel, came out, and it was both well received and took the world by storm via Book Talk. It was a, mm. one of the like big books that uh, blew up via the TikTok phenomenon known as Book Talk. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oddly, all of the success came before last year's Yellow Face, which was a departure in genre for her. It's not a fantasy. It's it's a it's literary fiction, but it was in and of itself one of the biggest releases in all of 2023. Starlight Media has purchased the rights to adapt the Poppy War for television, and Kwong has announced that her next novel will be a piece of what she calls nonsense fiction that follows two Yale PhD students traveling to hell to get letters of recommendation from their dead advice. Oh. Wow. Yeah. It is apparently going to be titled Catabasis. Hmm. I'm intrigued. Yeah, I wonder if she has to sort of edit that now that the like Alex Stern books by Bardugo are popular because there's sort of a eh, she can mm. there's room for all. I didn't think about that. Anywho, she's incredibly successful. She's very young and she's been like hitting home runs since she stepped up to the plate at age 19. Because we're probably going to do her again, I will keep this relatively short, but I want to throw in a short excerpt from a New York Times interview with Elizabeth Egan, which sort of references part of why she wrote Babel and then um, a little bit about her propensity from a very young age to be like obsessed with words. And then I will save more in-depth interview time for when maybe the Poppy War gets drawn or we, I think Yellowface has now been read by everyone, so that one won't get brought up, but maybe Catabasis will when that comes out next year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is one of those interviews where it's written out in like paragraph form as oh, like a yeah. narrative versus actually just saying the quotes. So I'm sort of to improvise here, but Elizabeth Egan is describing Kwong talking about Babel and about what it's sort of about, and here we are. As Kwong puts it, the ways in which translation and the acquisition of knowledge about various languages served as a tool of empire is what it's about. When we think about the technologies of empire and colonialism, we usually think about guns and ships, but in what ways has the understanding of knowledge or the knowledge of languages of people that are in the colonized territories enhanced or exacerbated the brutalities of colonial rule? So that's sort of like the seed that got planted that started Babel. Mm-hmm. And then there's a quote that Kwong says about herself growing up in Dallas. She says, I was really addicted to reading. I had to read while I was eating or I would get bored. Even when I was in the bathroom, I would reach for the shampoo bottles and read the back label just to have something to process. So you heard it here first on the To Read List podcast. If you want to be a prodigy writer, you need <laughs> to read shampoo bottles. You better read that head and shoulders. You better. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sorry you didn't like it. I still will probably check this book out and see if maybe it, it resonates with me differently because I really did like Yellowface. Um, yeah, maybe a little I'm, less than actually, Bailey did, but I but I enjoyed it quite yeah. a bit. I um I was speaking about this with Louise yesterday, and I was like, oh, Andrew's been on this thing where he reads books that me and Bailey have read, even if we don't like them. And I was like, I hope that Andrew reads this one because I'm curious to hear what you think about it. So yeah, I think I will. It's on Audible. Is all I'm saying. It's sitting right there. 
Mm-hmm. There you go. Well, thank you so much for those facts, Andrew. They were excellent facts. Hey, De Nada, Toby. Yes, but I'm more interested to hear what you guys thought of the book that you read this week, which is a book that I've read this week, but you tell me what it's called because I don't want to say it. Jillian, do you <laughs> want to say what it's called? The book is called, drumroll, mm-hmm. Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton. Oh, Burnham Wood. Dunson name, baby. I'm very hyped to hear you guys' review of this because I had thoughts about this book. It's been a while since we've all, like everybody on the podcast has read the book. We've had a few where a couple people have, but this is mm-hmm. good. We'll have a little meeting of the minds here. <laughs> well, will we though? Well, who's to say? Maybe, maybe we're going we'll to disagree. find out. This is very yeah. exciting. So what I'm going to do, I wrote a logline or what I do for a logline, which is the better version, which is just a paragraph because loglines mm-hmm. are stupid. Mm-hmm. You heard it here first. Dylan. Okay. All right. Wow. And then I, I've written down just some orcs and elves. I figure we can handle sort of filling in plot together. And then I'm sure everybody else has some orcs and some elves that we can talk in. And we'll just, you know, keep it. Keep it light. Keep it, keep it Yeah. Let's keep it breezy. Yeah. It's like we're like all running across Middle Earth together. And some of us are elves and some of us are orcs. And we're just kind of running and chasing each other. It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. I will be giving my hobbits for this book, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's just the cozy feelings you have. Uh-huh. So, Burnham Wood by Eleanor Catton follows an eco-collective, named after the famous forest in Macbeth, as they tangle with the chance of a lifetime presented to them by a billionaire entrepreneur. While it's a golden opportunity, nothing comes without a price, and they're forced to navigate personal turmoil, shifting self-identity, and the cynicism of wealth, all while something more dangerous lurks beneath the earth. Ooh. So that's just a little little, little amuse-bouche for you about what this book could be about. (laughs) Well loglined. What what else do you think the people need to know, folks? Yeah, I think crucial to know is that this book follows some distinct sets of characters who are all involved with one another through a farm that is in a now sort of secluded and entrapped small town in New Zealand following a uh, landslide. Mm -hmm. So we've got the we've got Burnham Wood, who are this uh, gardening anarchist gardening collective. And then we've got the owners of the farm in question. Um, the Darvishes, and and then we've got this billionaire named Robert Lemoyne who is uh, set to buy the farm, and so we sort of shift perspectives uh, between characters within those those three groups. Yeah, and it's also in New Zealand. And, you know, can have fun imagining the accent and the beautiful pastoral scene. Speaking of orcs and elves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of really beautiful descriptions of the scenery. I really, I really loved just the whole setting of this. Really tickled me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so to give, in case you're confused at what an anarchist gardening collective is, because uh, I realize that's not something you maybe hear hear about every day. Uh, it, the idea of it is like outwardly they like you reclaim land that's not being used to grow vegetables and then like sell that produce as a way of being more eco conscious, helping the earth, and also just like raising awareness of like the things that we're not doing in our in our food system. They also have a, like a sub thing that not everybody seems to know about, where they kind of steal from people to do it, and they like plant things on like yards that rich people aren't using or like the sides of roads and stuff without people's permission so that's how it becomes sort of the anarchist and they're very like um sort of hyper egalitarian to a kind of comical degree where like they have mm-hmm. all these bylaws and rules in their systems about how their meetings work which are like kind of comically egalitarian i think is the best way to say it mm. mm-hmm yeah, and then I, I would say that Jillian already kind of presented this, but it's like they find this golden opportunity because they are so used to using other people's land to grow, you know, 
vegetables or whatever they're growing, but they have been living in the city where they're kind of scraping by doing it like on the side of the road and stuff like that. Uh, one of the main characters of this book finds out about this farm that is now trapped behind this landslide. And she thinks this is a golden opportunity. Nobody's going to be there for the next six months. I'm going to take the whole collective out there and we're going to grow crops on this giant empty farm. Then she meets this billionaire, Robert Lemoyne, who's like, got some other stuff going on, which I don't know that we should get into too much. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Other than to say that he basically is like, I can help you. In like a sexy way. Yes. And I think it's crucial to note that Robert Lemoyne is American. Oh, yes. right. Do not imagine a fun accent for him. No fun no. accents. Unless you think an American accent is fun. And if you do, well, here we are. <laughs> I, yeah. I wish I lived your blessed life. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I feel like that's enough because there is a, like a lot of twisty turny reveals in this book. So I don't want to get too spoilery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But y'all have some orcs and elves to talk about with this, with this book about a wood. <laughs> yeah, I can jump in. Yeah. I will start with my orcs because spoiler alert, I enjoyed this book, so I don't have a lot of orcs. So, well, the first one, this is sort of a neutral to orc. It's uh, (laughs) the pace was a little bit like I I felt like the pace of this book was very much like a a wheel that is (laughs) careening down a hill. But at first, there's a long plateau where the wheel is just sort of getting pushed and starting to pick up speed. (laughs) So if I... Uh, hadn't read in advance that this book was a thriller. I don't think I would have known it was a thriller until about maybe halfway through. The first big swath of the book is really like settling you into the characters and into how they are in relation to one another to start and doing so with great detail and it's enjoyable, but it isn't exhilarating, I would say. (laughs) So yeah, that's one orc. And then something else that Andrew and I had kind of discussed a little bit before we started recording that, that I thought, oh yeah, that did sort of feel a little strange to me was that there are certain moments where key plot elements occur off stage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you sort of you somehow like switch perspectives and in the switch of perspectives something has happened in between that you're like oh wow okay here we are here we go again sort of a neutral to orc i didn't hate it but um it's a little jarring at times fair that's all i have for orcs oh wow Mm. yeah and then for me for elves the big elf the (laughs) big papa elf is (laughs) is the characters i like I thought they were so funny. Like they're and also I like I find it really enjoyable and I feel really like secure with an author who I know knows their characters very well. Their inner workings has like great insight into their their idiosyncrasies and contradictions and it all like tracks as they write it in their actions. And and so yeah, everyone felt specific and like simultaneously like very detailed and grounded but also larger than life in a sort of satirical way. Nobody was super likable. Everyone's a little bit deplorable and sort of Mm -hmm. like a enlarged joke version of whatever sort of ideal they represent within this the the conflicting ideals of this book and i so i i just found that highly enjoyable and that sort of helped get me through that first part where there wasn't a lot happening super quickly because i was just like sinking into these people and loving to hate them mm-hmm. in a really delicious way so that's that was my big elf and then i also really I enjoyed this book sort of characterizes the two sort of contrasting themes of nature and technology. It takes place out in the wilderness in this secluded area that's sort of cut off from the rest of the world. But at the same time, there's a lot of um, surveillance technology taking place. And Mm. you're constantly aware of what characters are doing with their phones. And there's a lot of email that happens. And I won't go into 
it in more detail than that. But it's the juxtaposition of those two things is really fun. I was going to say, you just made me realize that you say this phrase, which is like, there's a lot that happens over emails and phones. And you would think that that would be boring. But she actually does a great job of making it quite interesting and quite exciting. Like, oh, what's the text message they're going to send? And like, how are they going to word this email? It's actually quite interesting. So, yeah, another thing that I really enjoyed was the STEM elements of which there are many in this book, felt very well researched and fleshed out. And I I have to imagine that she did a lot of research to write this book because there's the technology piece, surveillance technology, drone technology, um, etc. And then also there is like survivalist science and how to survive in the woods and 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 how to plant plants and all the things that that go into you know making a crop grow and and what you can eat when you're out in the woods and again i felt like full trust in the author that like she knew what she was talking about and then i learned some things and then i was so i wasn't sure how to phrase this but i wrote in my notes thrilling to ride along with expertise even if the uh. actions are deplorable Yeah. There are characters who are doing things that are reprehensible, but they are so good at doing them or they are doing them like with a lot of a lot of knowledge to back up their actions. And you're so curious to see how they're going to get around this whatever hurdle it is mm-hmm. that you don't even care that that you don't agree with anything they're doing. You're just fascinated at how they're going to accomplish. The closest thing I could think of was the TV show or the Netflix show You yeah. with Penn Badgley, where you hate everything he's doing, but you like can't get off the ride because you want to see how he does it. Yeah, it's the thrill of competency, isn't it? Just like watching someone who's mm. really good at their job or whatever they're trying to do. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like watching me eat chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> My God. What a thrill. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's what I have for Orcs and Elves. It seems like you hated it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to hear. All right, Andrew. Now, it's very good for the podcast if you really hate this book. So please tell us how much do you disagree with your wife? My wife is wrong on every... No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of my Orcs and Elves sort of overlap. Like my, my main elf, like Jillian, is the, is the characters. Um, the specific writing that brings out the details in them. I mean, the characters character of Tony in particular is so mm. specifically truthfully drawn of a specific type of dude and I mm-hmm. freaking hated him so much. <laughs> this isn't a spoiler. He's just so irritating in a way that you have met before. But that's sort of the joy of how specific Catton got with the writing. And mostly, mostly that creates really believable like real characters in like an extreme situation. Another sort of elf for that is it was really twisty and surprising. Like things did surprise me. I did not have a hand of where things were going entirely on this one Mm. and part of that was there was like good reveals of when characters came and went in terms of the perspective shifts this isn't a spoiler to say like people do not get equal weight you are not going to get like a chapter from the character Mira then a chapter from the character Shelly in like equal weight they're going to come in when they're needed and when they have something to add to the story and I thought that that was like a good way of keeping it spicy Mm. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed in this writing Catton's use of like emotional calculation I don't know if this makes sense but like she describes how people act to other people because of how they're feeling really well. Mm. People getting yeah. like mean to each other because they're feeling bad. And like she just really hits the nail on the head in terms of like, I guess the subtext of things affecting how people are behaving and why they're behaving. I thought that was like, mm-hmm. you don't get that in everything. And so that was a, a strong elf. For my orcs, I can't, I just can't say my biggest orc. 
because of spoilers. Uh, so I, won't. I think I might know. Yeah. Pages, you're going to have to just read the book to find out the orc. Yeah, you're going to have to. And then a, a smaller orc was, sometimes the characters got so unlikable that I kind of zoned out. And I was like, oh, yeah. come on, man. <laughs> just a little bit. And I usually don't. I usually am like, I'm all here for like these real people are doing real mistakes. But sometimes it got so extreme. I was like, please, please stop. <laughs> Looking at you, Tony. Just stop. Yeah. <laughs> Looking at you, Robert. Come on, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so th- that was sort of what I wrote down for my orcs and elves. How about, how about you, King of Humboldt, Toby? Oh, wow. I didn't expect that sudden title. I agree with everything both of you guys have said. I'll just slip in an extra elf, which is Eleanor Catton is very aware of the New Zealand national psyche, particularly in the way that the characters deal with this American billionaire. They are not only thinking of who they are as like individual people, but every character from the eco commune to the owners of the farm who are basically like pretty well-to-do boomers, they all are aware of kind of representing New Zealand on an international stage, especially to this very powerful American. And she kept bringing that theme up again and again. And I thought it was so interesting, um, just the way Mm -hmm. the trouble she took to kind of portray New Zealand's national spirit or national attitude and how they're very aware that they are perceived by the world as being kind of clever and friendly and how that can be an aid in some situations and then not an aid in other situations. I would add also I totally agree with that. And I um, and thank you for saying it, because it reminded me that this as an American reader, I thought was such a revelatory like perspective on issues that are very current and very like Mm -hmm. things that we as Americans are thinking about, I hope all the time, but from just a slightly different lens and seeing where the overlap is and where there's like that just that slight tint of something different because it's coming from the perspective of these Kiwi characters. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say my I, I I can't reveal my my big orc either, but it was a big orc. And it, I, I just basically I'll just say the ending was not satisfying to me. And it like I actually liked the slow start a lot. I was just totally on board. It's just one of those books where her writing is so fantastically fluid and smart and funny that I was just ready to kind of drift along in it. And then when things started to pick up and go in that more thriller direction, I was totally on board. But then I felt sometimes like at the end of the book, like we had been kind of the rug was pulled out where it was like oh you thought this was going to be a traditional thriller but really it's going to leave you in a more literary space where there are more I don't know it didn't feel very satisfying to me the ending and that, and that hurt me a mm-hmm. lot honestly because I really wanted a, a satisfying ending and I know that's not the most mature criticism but that's how I felt <laughs> it's okay your feelings are valid Toby thank you all right. Hopefully that like intrigued our pageos enough to maybe pick up this book. But I before we move on to facts, we got to know what was everyone's star rating on this bad boy? Jillian, you are our guest. You should go first. As the guest, I will go first. And <laughs> I will say that I am giving this four stars. The big quattro quattro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll go second as the other guest, permanent guest. And I'll say, you know, I looked on Goodreads this morning. And so I saw that I had rated it three stars. It's crept up in my memory. I have more fond memories than I do not fond ones. And I think that I rated it right after I finished it and was dissatisfied with the ending. But it's a four star for me now, too. I've revised. It's a four star. Mm. Hmm. 
Well, as the podcast's resident bad boy, I'll go last. I think I might be where you were at the end of your reading, Toby, and I'm at a three with it because of my big orc that I can't talk about. Mm -hmm. But I really did like it, and it really intrigued me to read more of her, even though we have a a copy of the Luminaries on our shelf here, and it is giant, so I don't know if I'm a little scared, but like, she's an amazing writer, and I really enjoyed reading it, but I did just leave it a little unsatisfied, but maybe I'll be where you are in a few months. We can only hope, Andrew. We can only hope. But you know what else we can hope? about toby what if you prepared some facts to share with us about eleanor catton i did i did <laughs> eleanor catton uh she'll also make you feel bad about yourself you ready always um, no i'm scared <laughs> eleanor catton mnzm which is member of the new zealand order of merit Ooh. Yes, uh, she was born in 1985. She is a novelist and screenwriter. She was born in Canada and she moved to New Zealand as a child and grew up in Christchurch. She completed her master's degree in creative writing at the International Institute of Modern Letters. Her award-winning debut novel, The Rehearsal, was written as her master's thesis and was published in 2008 and was adapted into the 2016 film of the same name. Her second novel, The Luminaries, that big old chonker on Andrew and Jillian's bookshelf, won the 2013 Booker Prize, which made Catton the youngest author ever to win the prize at the age of 28. Dang. Little Catton. <laughs> Catton the hot tin roof. <laughs> it was uh, then adapted into a television miniseries, and Catton was the screenwriter of that series. So that's that's the basic facts of her life. Um, I've also looked up some interesting interviews. I'm going to read you a couple excerpts. The first of this is from the Spinoff website, and the interviewer is Claire Maybe. And this is also one of these interviews where it's written in like narrative form. And I don't usually try to use those, but this one had such a great detail in it that I had to use it. So this is Catton speaking in quotations here. Catton says, I did have this one really funny interaction with my American editor. She called me and said, I'm really sorry I'm hung up on this, but I find it disgusting that the Darvishes share bathwater. And side note, (laughs) (laughs) the Darvishes are the boomer couple that own the farm. No lie, Jillian and I both mentioned that detail to each other. (laughs) Well, you you just wait. (laughs) To an American, that's super disgusting, even though I know it's ecologically mindful. Well, that's very strange, Catton says back to her editor, because my husband's American and I've been sharing bathwater with him for 15 years and he's never had a problem with it. And now we're into the narrative of the of the interview. Catton then hung up the call and told her partner about it, quote, and he got this funny look on his face and said, I actually do find it disgusting. I just never wanted to offend you. <laughs> 15 years of, of polite bathwater sharing shattered. I'm so curious to know if he always bathed first. And so uh, it was never him having to, to have the secondhand bathwater. I bet he's just like sprinting to the bathroom all the time. <laughs> Me first. No, no, no. I'll, nose goes. And the rest of these are excerpts from an interview with The Cut. And the interviewer is Catherine Gillespie. This is a more traditional where Catherine asks the questions and Eleanor answers. I wanted to jump to this answer because Andrew mentioned really hating Tony. So Catherine asks, I found the character of Tony really interesting. He's an angry young man with a not so secret desire to become famous. What was it like to write a Bernie bro? And Eleanor answers, it was really fun, actually. I have a lot of sympathy for him. 
I've been him. I don't share his opinions. He's a Marxist in a way that never attracted me. I'm too much of a feminist to be attracted by that kind of Marxism. But I drew a lot from my own experience in writing him. And that feeling when you're advocating for your ideas, but realize you're doing it badly and you've lost the support of the room. That appalling sense of terror and despair when something that you've created has spiraled out of your control. But I think he's also another character who thinks he is led from the head and he really has led from the heart. He's one of the most passionate, emotive characters in the book. That's so true. That's her thoughts on the embattled yeah. Tony. And so Catherine asks, what brought you to write about environmental collapse in Burnham Wood? Eleanor answers, the threat of environmental collapse poses quite a difficult challenge for a novelist in that the responsibility for it is so diffuse. It's so random. In a sense, a novel has a funny relationship with randomness because everything is in there because the author has chosen to put it there. And there can be unexpected elements or surprising elements, but there can't truly be random elements. It's only the illusion of randomness. In a way, I didn't really set about writing a book that's an ecological thriller. And to be perfectly honest, I still don't know really what that is. Um, and then as a final little comment from her, Catherine says, after reading Burnham Wood, I thought a lot about Jacinda Arden's recent resignation speech. It was one of the most chilling things I've watched in a long time. And Pejos, if you, that name is tickling your brain, Jacinda Arden was a recent prime minister of New Zealand and she resigned and gave a chilling resignation speech. Catherine continues, she basically admitted that the job was too hard, that she couldn't accomplish what she wanted to. It felt like a fitting backdrop to the book, which has a hopelessness to it. And and Eleanor answers, I'm not necessarily feeling hopeless, but the hold the technology has over us, the extent to which we're allowing our social interactions and our thoughts and memories to be conditioned, outsourced, massaged and manipulated by these shadowy tech overlords and the devices they control. I feel very depressed about that. I think that spending time online has destroyed us and is making us feel as though things are less possible than they are. It is making us feel as though hatred is more prevalent than it really is and compromise is more impossible than it really is. So I think if these powers could be restored trained and institutions defended, I do feel hopeful, but it's hard. I was thinking about a line in Burnham Wood early on about the character Mira. It says, unusually for somebody of her politics, she was untouched by depression because of course, depression and suicide are a huge problem on the left and in activist circles. I wrote that line about Mira almost as a fantasy. Wouldn't it be nice to be untouched by depression? <laughs> hmm. That's Eleanor Catton. Uh, hopefully we'll hear about more of her in the future. Yeah. Maybe I'll pick up a copy of the rehearsal instead of Luminary because I don't like the idea of having like two or four weeks to read that book, but yeah, I do really like getting to spend some time with her writing. Well, Andrew, I'm glad you guys enjoyed Burnham Wood, but what about Burnham Game? Oh, oh, oh. do I have a transition? game for you two? That's a great transition, Toby. Yes. I'm not. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited. So you two are international funky people. You've been around the world. You mm. have, uh, you are cultured and, you know, citizens of this blue marble. So the name of the uh -oh. game this week mm -hmm. is Babylon by David Gray. Babylon. <laughs> So it's a sort of interesting game, and I feel like you two are uniquely skilled at it, because I happen to know both of you have spent time in other countries, you know a little bit about a bunch of different languages, uh, and oh, no. I'm just going to play a little game here. So the way this will work, it's very simple. It'll be There'll be two quick rounds. In round one, you can take turns alternating, counting to three in as many languages as you can, but no one can repeat the same language. So you'll have to go with ones that you're sure of soon, or you think the other one might know early, uh, and you'll get three points for a successful count to three, and an additional point for four and five if you know them so you can get up to five points for each language does that make sense mm -hmm. yes we're alternating as well 
alternating. Um, I will. Okay, the Jillian is the guest, so she'll get to go first. Sorry, Toby. Um, and then round two is the same uh, setup, except we're going to ask you for the word gray, like David Gray in different languages. And then there's three oh, points dear. for a successful <laughs> answer there. It'll be a real short round, I think. Uh, so Jillian, <laughs> do you have a language you'd like to go with first? Yes, please. All right. What language are you submitting to the group? I, I'd like to submit French. Okay, French. If I may. Um, here we go. Un, deux, trois, quatre, cinq. That's a full five on French for Jillian. Bing, bing. bing, bing. Toby, French is off the table. What you bring in? All right, we got Spanish. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. That is a full five for Toby in Spanish. Jillian. I'm going to go ahead and uh, spin some Russian for you. Uh-huh. I thought you might. I thought you might. <laughs> Ras, dva, tri, štiri, piat, šest. That's another five for Jillian. All right. We got Chinese coming at you. Uh, and those of you who speak Chinese, please ignore my terrible mangling of the tones. E R San Su Wu Liu Chi Ba Jiu Shu. There's all the way to ten for you. Well, you only get five points Whoa. for your Mandarin, and you did mangle the tones. Um, <laughs> I did. Yeah. <laughs> that's about all I remember from my year of Chinese is some of the tones in the numbers. All right, Jillian, it's back to you. Do you have a third language that has not been used? Yeah, I'm gonna give German a shot. Ah. Uh, I. Zwei, three? <laughs> nope. I, I might no. have not gotten the three. No. No, unfortunately, Can I, I steal? believe. Uh, well, yeah, Toby, because you knew that that was wrong, and if you get the three right, you will be able to get take those points. Mm. I'm afraid we were looking for drei. Drei. So give it to me all the way through, Toby. Eins, zwei, drei. And I don't know four and five. <laughs> all right, so it's three for German. Uh, I'd also like to submit English. No. Boom. Foreign language. No? <laughs> oh. No. Um... Hmm. I don't think I know any other ones. I don't. Yeah, I'm tapped. Jillian, do you have any other ones you'd like to try? No, I know how to say two in Italian, but I think that's sandwiched by a one and a three that I don't remember. So mm, I'm yeah. tapping out. <laughs> it often is, often is. <laughs> All right. Is okay, it, wait, so, is it, un, wait, is Italian une, due, tre? I will have to look this up. That's, that's three for Toby there. <laughs> Mm. Wow. I wouldn't have thought of it except for Jillian mentioned Italian and I was like, I think it's do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Dang. So Toby has a commanding lead going into our David Gray Babylon round. Um, (laughs) Jillian, do you know the word for gray in any language? I do. I know the word for gray in French. What is it? It is gris. That is correct. Well, that's funny because I know the word for gray in Spanish, which is also gris. (laughs) That's true. That's a correct and a correct. Jillian, do you have another one? Um, does British English count? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I got nothing. Yep, I, I'm, I'm also tapped out. Would it help? Because uh, I looked this up in Turkish because I just had that. I had my app open for Turkish. Uh, it's gri in Turkish. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so that's just another one for you. I think the data is suggesting that maybe it's gri in every language, and I don't care to fact check that at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can tell you in uh, Italian, it's Grigio. Oh. oh. So is, is Pinot, Pinot Grigio, Grigio supposed to be gray wine? That can't be right. <laughs> well. No. I'm searching gray in my Google Translate and it translates to Grigio. All right. Well, all that said, Toby, congratulations. You are the winner with 19 points. Jillian, you have hmm. an respectable 13. And frankly, I you have a lot more languages than I was expecting. So good job, you folks. <laughs> and I'm proud of you. Thank you. Oh, Yay, thank Toby. You, Yay, Jillian.
well, amazing game, Andrew, especially amazing because I won it. And <laughs> now we are looking forward to the most exciting part of the podcast. It's the part where we each will choose books at random from each other's shelves. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The choosing. Yeah, you get to be part of this without like a deep, unsettling fear, which must be fun. Yeah. What's that like? <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. I've nice. never known. And now, Andrew, I was thinking we missed an opportunity last time to try and do our best. We often make fun of Dylan because his kind of like foreboding, weird little clues that he tries to give us of what the books are before he reveals them. And uh, I think it'd be fun if we tried to do our own version of that. Are you up for it? Yeah, I'm up for it. So are we trying to be as like weird as Dylan goes with them? Or are we trying to do a good version of what Dylan does just for clarity? <laughs> you know what? Why don't you just do what you're going to do and we'll find out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> find out if it's weird and awkward or if it's really good all right toby i know you are always apologizing for being where you are see but perhaps you're apologizing for number 31 Sorrowland by rivers solomon Ooh. Oh, I'm very excited. This is, um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, by the way, sorry. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm very excited. This is a, a fantasy book. It came out a couple years ago now. It was, it was big when it came out. I am not too familiar with the plot, but I know it is supposed to be like quite beautiful. And yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to read this one. So, Andrew, I yes. know you love the trumpet. I know <laughs> the trumpet. you love. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for backing me up there. Um, I know you love the city because you Mambo live in a big five. one sometimes. <laughs> Mambo number five. I hope you're excited to read number 15 The City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. Ah, yes, I am Ooh. excited to read this one. I was just actually, it happens to have like a very eye level place on our shelf. And I was wondering mm. if I had actually added it to my read to read list. And this answers that question in spades. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really excited. It's also a fantasy. I believe it's sort of inspired by more Middle Eastern mythology. I'm not 100% mm. sure on that, um, but it looks really cool. I bought it relatively recently too. So it, it didn't have a long time on the bench, but it's here for a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Awesome. Okay. So. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com forward slash the To Read List podcast. Thank you to Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me. And thank you so much to Jillian for being on with us. My pleasure. And for composing our intro song. So yeah, double thank you to Jillian. But if you want to get thank you by us, a great way to do that is to go onto your <laughs> podcatcher of choice and rate or review us five stars. It helps more people find the podcast. It increases our reach slightly. It helps our eco-anarchist group very much. So that's a great way to help us out. Speaking of mm -hmm. our eco-anarchist group, tell all the people in your eco-anarchist group to listen to this podcast because <laughs> word of mouth is our best way of finding new listeners. And so we'd really appreciate it if you shared that you liked us. Plant that seed. Oh, Jillian. <laughs> in with the final, the final quip. All right, guys. See you all next week. Happy reading. Books, books, books. 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 Amazing. <laughs>